Good morning. Those of you who uh, were not able to uh, go away for spring break, we get to be together here today, and that's great. And it is uh, good to be with you. Uh, so the refrain today is, Christ is risen. Amen. And we celebrate that uh, reality in Luke 24 today. Luke 24 tells the story of that uh, resurrection. And if you would turn there and uh, be prepared to hang out there for just a few moments with me today, that would be wonderful. Luke 24, and as you're arriving uh, at that text, uh, join me in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are our risen Lord that we can say with conviction and certainty that you are reigning today, that you live uh, both now and forevermore. Lord, thank you that the reality of your resurrection is just not, a, uh, not just a historical event, but a current reality for all of us. And Lord, we pray today that you would help us to step into the reality of your resurrection, to know you and to experience your presence with us and in us today. Lord, do that through your word and through your spirit, through the fellowship of our friends here. And Lord, keep your promise to be here with your people. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 24. But very early on Sunday morning, the women came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found that the stone covering the entrance had been rolled away. And so they went in. But they couldn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They were puzzled, trying to think, what could have happened to it? And suddenly two men appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. And the women were terrified and bowed low before them. And the men asked them, why are you looking in a tomb for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Don't you remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day? And then they remembered that he had said all of this. So they rushed back to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. The women who went to the tomb were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several others. And they told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. And then he went home again, wondering what had happened. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles out of Jerusalem. And as they were walking along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And suddenly, Jesus himself came along and joined them and began walking beside them. But they didn't know who he was because God kept them from recognizing him. You seem to be in deep discussion about something, he said. What are you so concerned about? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all of the things that have happened here in these last few days. What things, Jesus said. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did wonderful miracles. He was a mighty teacher. He was highly regarded by both God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders arrested him and handed him over to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. 
we had thought that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. All of this happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing. They said they had seen angels who told them about that Jesus was alive. And some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, Jesus' body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, You are such foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all of these things before entering into his time of glory? Then Jesus quoted passages from the writings of Moses and all of the prophets, explaining what all of the scriptures said about himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus would have gone on, but they begged him to stay the night with them since it was getting late. And so he went home with them, and as they sat down to eat, he took a small loaf of bread, asked God's blessing on it, broke it, then gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. Then they said to each other, Didn't our hearts feel strangely warm as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem, where the eleven disciples and the other followers of Jesus were gathered. And when they arrived, they, greeted, they were greeted with the report, The Lord has really risen, and he appeared to Peter. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. I recently uh, heard the uh, story of a uh, father who was out for a drive with his young five-year-old son. And uh, in the course of their drive on a sleepy Sunday afternoon, they eventually ended up passing a cemetery. And behind the fence of the cemetery, uh, they noticed a large pile of dirt next to a recently excavated gravesite. And the young son in the back seat pointed at the pile of dirt and said, Dad, look, one got out. One got out. And that's a great summary of Easter. Uh, We celebrate that summary today. We celebrate that Easter stands like a banner over all of history. And on that banner it says, One got out. One got away. And because one got out, you will too. We've been making our way here at Midland Reformed Church through a series of messages called We Believe. And we've been talking about all of the things that stand as sort of the building blocks of the Christian life. What is it that we believe? What is it that we believe about faith and What is it that we believe about creation? And what do we believe about the Trinity? What do we believe about sin? What do we believe? And this morning we're going to be thinking together about what we believe about salvation. What do we believe about salvation? And in order for us to see what we believe, in order for us to bring that picture into focus, we have to address three places that we miss it. Three places that we miss the resurrection. Three ways, perhaps, that we deny the resurrection. Three ways that we disbelieve the resurrection. First, we're going to see that we can deny 
the reality of the resurrection. Secondly, we're going to see that we can deny the meaning of the resurrection. And then finally, we can deny the daily presence of the resurrected Jesus. So let's look at each one of those very quickly this morning. First of all, we can deny the resurrection if we disbelieve the miracle itself. And I think it's a fascinating way that Luke tells the story here in Luke uh, 24, because he tells the, the story as it actually unfolds. Uh, he takes us to the tomb that early morning with the women. And as the women arrive at that tomb, they are expecting that Jesus will still be dead. They arrive with spices that they have prepared, says Luke. They arrive looking for a body. They are there to, to, to deal with a corpse. That is their uh, belief. That is their expectation. They didn't arrive thinking, well, let's just grab some spices on the off chance that Jesus is still there. They weren't expecting that Jesus was alive again. They thought he's still dead. Everything in them, all of their words, all of their attitudes, all of their actions, everything says, we expect Jesus to be there in the tomb. And they're shocked and surprised and confused when he isn't. And in this, they are no different than you or from me. right? If you hear about somebody who has died, and you make plans to uh, maybe attend a, uh, a viewing, or you attend a funeral, and you're going to put that plan in your, uh, in your day planner, you don't put a note there that says, uh, next week Thursday, uh, I will attend a funeral if Mike is still dead. right? You don't, you don't put a caveat. Uh, on the off chance that uh, he remains dead, I'll go to the funeral home. You don't expect, uh, we all know that dead people stay dead. We know that. We all understand that. And there isn't any evidence that says that in the first century, people were any more confused about that than you or I. Uh, they understood that reality as well. They knew that people stayed dead once they had died. There's no evidence that says that people in the first century were any more gullible or backward or primitive than anybody else in that regard. They understand that dead people stay dead. And in fact, we see that here in this text. We see that there are places where Jesus had tried to explain his own death, where Jesus had said things to his disciples like, you know that I'll be delivered into the hands of the, the government and I'll be crucified, but on the third day I'll be raised again from the dead. And every time Jesus talks about or predicts his resurrection, the Bible says the, the disciples were confused. What is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. And in fact, when the women arrive back from the tomb that early morning and tell the other uh, disciples that are gathered there, uh, they respond the same way that we would respond. That's nonsense. It makes no sense at all. And Luke knows that we know that dead people coming back to life again is nonsense. Except when it isn't. And so Luke comes with the evidence. He doesn't overwhelm us with the evidence. It's a little bit subtle. But he says, I want you to understand that this is something so spectacular and so unusual and so out of the ordinary, I'm not just going to ask you to believe it straight away. I know that you don't. I know that you can't. Nobody ever has. But here's some evidence. And what is the evidence that he brings? He names names. 
He names names. And what does that mean? What's the significance of that? He says, look, here's some names that I want you to know. He doesn't just say uh, some women went to the tomb. He doesn't just say some of Jesus' followers were confused. He names names. He says very specifically, Mary was there, and Joanna was there, and there was another Mary there, and then there were some other women that were there. And it was Peter who went and looked, and it was Cleopas on the road that talked to Jesus. He names names. You say, well, what kind of evidence is that? What's the point of that? And here's what I want to say. Um, this is an example that Tim Keller originally used. Let me just adapt it just a little bit. The story that uh, Luke is, is writing about here, uh, by the time it is written down and begins to circulate among the churches, about 35 to 40 years has passed from the time the events took place to the time Luke is writing his gospel. So 35 to 40 years. So uh, within that time frame, people have this document, and they have the names listed before them. Now, if we were to translate that into something like uh, today's timeline, uh, let's go back just a little bit further, and let's say uh, just, you know, just over 45, just slightly over 45 years ago. Let's go back to 1970. That happens to be the year that I was born, uh, just slightly over 45 years ago. Uh, and so 1970, uh, let's say that tomorrow morning a book comes out, and the book says... Uh, in 1970, uh, Abraham Lincoln appeared in your parents' hometown. So in my case, that would be West Michigan. Anybody else here from West Michigan or connections to West Michigan? Any West Michigan connections? Yes? Okay, I know you're out here. <clears throat> and it, and uh, my parents are actually here from West Michigan today, so we can confirm the story. So the book comes out and says, look, Abraham Lincoln uh, in 1970 came back from history and he appeared and he started to teach. And he taught people things. And over the course of about 40 days, uh, he would teach people uh, sayings and wisdom and invited people to believe what he was saying. And uh, uh, at one point during that time, he appeared to one person, another time three people, another time 12 people. And uh, in, in at least one case, and maybe other cases, at least 500 people were all gathered together back in uh, West Michigan in 1970. And Abraham Lincoln appeared to them. And he taught them, and then after 40 days, uh, he disappeared. And uh, the book comes out, and it says, uh, and believe this, accept this. Now, what would you do with a book like that? Let's say my daughter Hannah picks up that book, and she sees, uh, back in 1970, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln wandered around West Michigan. Would she just believe it based on reading that, or not believe it based on reading that? What, what would my daughter Hannah most likely do? She would call up Graf and Grandma, right? Maybe she would drive a couple of hours to West Michigan, and she would go, and she would say to Graf and Grandma, hey, do you, do you, uh, do you have any uh, memory of this? Is it true that, that, uh, that uh, Abraham Lincoln was wandering around West Michigan in 1970, uh, the, the year that my dad was born? Do you remember uh, that, that Abraham Lincoln was also there? And, uh, and then she would interview people. She would ask the people that were still alive that were alive then. And what would they tell her? They would either say, yes, Abraham Lincoln was here, and he wandered around West Michigan. He came back from history, and he appeared to people, and many of us saw him at the same time. Or they would say, never happened. Never happened. 
Now, the, the, what, the future of the book that came out, the future of a book that came out describing the appearance of Abraham Lincoln in West Michigan in 1970 would hinge on the answer that the people gave who were there at the time. Right? If, if everybody said never happened, never happened, what, what would happen to that book? It would be done. The book wouldn't go anywhere. Nobody would read it. Nobody would believe it. Nobody would follow it. It would be done. And what Luke is saying here, the evidence that Luke is bringing to the table is this. He's saying, look, don't just read the book. It's only, it's only 40 years ago. So don't, don't just read the book. Here are the names. Here are the eyewitnesses. It's only a day's walk. Go and ask them. Go and check it out. And what people did was they said, okay, we'll go and find out. And so they went and talked to Cleopas, and they went and talked to Mary, and they went and talked to Mary, and they went and talked to Joanna, and they had the conversations with Peter. They asked them what they had seen. And they said, yes, Jesus was risen, and he appeared to me. It's the only way in a culture, in a world that wasn't prepared to believe in resurrections any more than we are today. It's the only way that a book like this would have gotten off the ground. Otherwise, it would have been dead in its tracks. Luke says, you can believe it. Don't deny the miracle of the resurrection. So the first point, then, is that we deny the power of salvation we, we don't understand what salvation is when we deny the miracle of the resurrection, when we disbelieve that Jesus rose physically from the dead. But there's a second way that we can deny the resurrection, and that is we can deny its meaning. We can deny the meaning of the resurrection. And Luke takes that issue on for us as well. The words of the angels are recorded, and there's an important emphasis here. They, they use the word must over and over again. And whenever um, uh, they describe what happened, they use the word must. He must be betrayed. He must suffer. He must die. He must rise again. And what the angels are saying, what Luke is telling us is that the women who arrived at the tomb, they may have known that Jesus had died, right? They, but they didn't remember. They didn't understand. They didn't believe that he had to die. They knew that he had died, but didn't understand that he had to die. And because they didn't understand that he had to die, they weren't looking for a resurrection. And isn't that exactly what the angels say? They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Didn't you remember that Jesus had to die? It's as if they're saying, if you had known that, if you understood why Jesus had to die, then you wouldn't be here looking for him. You would know that he had been raised again. So the question is, why did Jesus have to die? Why did that have to happen? How is it that we can understand the death of Jesus in such a way that we don't deny the meaning of the resurrection? And as we consider that question, I think there are two mistakes that we can make uh, related to the resurrection. We can make the resurrection mean too little. Uh, Jesus didn't die just so that we could have an ins uh, sort of an inspiring example to live by. Right? Jesus didn't uh, die just to inspire uh, good lives in other people. Uh, Jesus' story isn't just another story of a martyr 
and his cause, meant to uh, sort of thrill and inspire and call you to action. And Jesus didn't have to die, on the other hand, just so that your personal sins could be forgiven. Jesus didn't die just so that you could be forgiven. There's more to it than that. Jesus himself doesn't have a whole lot to say uh, about why he had to die. He doesn't talk about it. He says that he has to die, but he doesn't say a lot about why. One place that he does discuss it is in Mark. Mark chapter 10.45. In there, uh, the context is that Jesus is having a discussion uh, with his disciples. And, you know, his disciples are always trying to figure out uh, which one of them will be more important in the kingdom, which one will have more power. And the disciples are just kind of keep displaying this tendency that they're scrambling after power in, for, uh, in God's kingdom. And Jesus says to them, no, uh, don't be like that. Instead, he says, follow me, follow my example. And then he says this. He said that he came uh, to serve, he came as a servant of others, and to give his life as a ransom in the place of many. And so there are two things that come into view here. One is that in giving his own life, he's giving it in the place of others. And second, when he uses the language of ransom, he's using a word uh, that's related to uh, the idea of redeeming or redemption. And it tends to refer to the uh, idea of a payment uh, that is given in order to buy freedom. And so uh, if you lived in the Greco-Roman world and you were a slave and you had somehow managed to save some money together, uh, you could uh, go into the slave market and pay a ransom and you would be set free. And uh, the idea is that Jesus believes that his death is necessary in order to set God's people free from sin. Uh, not just individuals free from sin, but to set the whole of creation free from their bondage to sin. Uh, a little bit later in Mark, at the Last Supper, uh, we see another uh, example of Jesus' own understanding of why he had to die. Uh, in Mark 14, Jesus uses the, the language uh, um, when he is uh, uh, pouring out the cup, and we're going to do that together in just a few moments. Uh, he says, this uh, is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Uh, and the language of blood suggests uh, the idea uh, somehow of dealing with sin. Think about all of the, the blood sacrifices in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, the people would be reminded of the cost involved in cleansing away sin. Uh, and further, there's this idea of a covenant. And a covenant is a concept that speaks to a new relationship with God. Uh, he's saying there would be a new era between God and God's people. And so a little bit later on in the New Testament, uh, Paul will take both of those ideas and he will reflect on the meaning of the resurrection and how Jesus' death and resurrection together usher in a new creation. Sin has to be dealt with and new life has to be established. Both of those things have to be true. Jesus has to die in order for that to happen. Uh, one of my favorite writers, N.T. Wright, uh, holds both of those together <clears throat> and he uses the image of a hurricane uh, to describe the inevitability of Jesus' death. Listen to what uh, uh, Wright says. <clears throat> he says, Jesus cannot establish the new creation without allowing the poison in the old to have its full effect. 
He cannot launch God's kingdom of justice, truth, and peace unless injustice, lies, and violence do their worst and like a hurricane, blow themselves out, exhausting their force on this one spot. He cannot begin the work of healing the world unless he provides the antidote to the infection that would otherwise destroy the project from within. And then having absorbed the very worst, God raises Jesus from the dead in God's brand new creation with a new first person, perfectly reflective of God's image. God's new world, a world without death, is born. We deny the meaning of the resurrection when we reduce it. When we reduce it and we say, uh, see, what that means is that we can go to heaven someday when we die. Or this proves that Jesus was right all along. We really are forgiven. All of those things are fine and all of those things are true in their own way, but they're insufficient on their own. Because even more, the resurrection points to a greater truth and a greater reality. Not just that you can go to heaven when you die, but that now heaven and earth have been reunited in the resurrection of Jesus. Heaven and earth have been healed. They've been brought back together. And this has always been God's plan and God's intention from the very beginning. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was a place where heaven and earth came together and God lived in harmony and fellowship and relationship with his people. Eden was a picture of heaven and earth together. And then a little bit later on, we see that again in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then again in the temple in Jerusalem. And then again in the people of, of Israel. And then we see it in the person of Jesus. Over and over and over again, the Bible is screaming at us and saying, what God wants, what your heavenly Father wants, is not just you go to heaven when you die. But heaven comes to you now. Heaven and earth are reunited. God's project of healing the entire cosmos is underway. And moreover, you are invited to be a part of that new creation. N.T. Wright again has written it this way. He says, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. Heaven and earth have been brought back together. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, go ask the eyewitnesses and they'll tell you. If he is truly risen from the dead, then Christianity becomes good news for the whole world News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice and violence and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And that we will work and plan with all of the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. And we deny the resurrection when we reduce it, when we limit it, when we deny the full meaning, the full value, the full power, the full reality of what God has done. We can miss our salvation if we miss the miracle of the resurrection itself. We can miss it if we deny 
the meaning of the resurrection. And then finally, you may be squared away on all of those. You may be here today and you say, I believe that Jesus physically rose from the grave. I've been convinced by the powerful evidence that that was a historic event, that it happened in time and space. And you may say, and I understand the theology, I understand the meaning of the resurrection, that it is the beginning of God's inbreaking kingdom, that it is the beginning of heaven and earth coming back together in that like great ripples of, of sound and water flowing out from that one event. God is making all things new, and we're invited to be a part of that project. I understand all of that. I haven't reduced it. There's one more way that we can deny the resurrection. You can deny the resurrection by denying the spiritual presence of Jesus. You can deny the resurrection today by missing the very presence of the resurrected Jesus with you in your life today. Because when it comes right down to it, if you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with yourself, and this isn't intended to be as harsh as it sounds, but when it comes down to it, your relationship with Jesus, Jesus might as well still be dead. Uh, that's the relationship that the women were prepared to have as they arrived at the tomb that Easter morning. They were there prepared to have a relationship with somebody who had died. That's the relationship that Cleopas and his companion on the Emmaus Road were having. Uh, they, they were grieving. They were sad. They were having a relationship with the Jesus who had already died. But Jesus was no longer with them. When was the last time that you visited a cemetery? When was the last time you stood by a graveside? Maybe you went and uh, you recalled some stories. Maybe you stood and you felt the, lo the loss or you laughed at some private joke remembered. You tried to imagine a face that the fog of time has now blurred. Perhaps you even said a few words. But as you stand at the graveside, you're not talking to that person. You're not dealing with them. You're dealing with only a memory. And that's how the women at the tomb that early Easter morning were trying to worship Jesus. They were coming to, with spices to anoint a body and to worship the memory of their Jesus. And the angels have to say, he's not here. You can't deal with Jesus that way. You have to deal with the person, not the memory. And so here's the question. How do you do that? How are you doing that? Is your prayer life more like standing by a grave or dealing with a person? I love that the the way that the two travelers on the Emmaus Road described the experience of being in the presence of Jesus, even before they recognized Jesus as Jesus. And what do they say as they look back on that uh, time on the road? And they say, weren't our hearts strangely warmed within us? Uh, they, they, it's almost as if they were vibrating with Jesus' love. They were vibrating with life and and just crackling with, with new possibilities, even before they could put a name to it. And all of their fears and dashed hopes and confusion and misunderstanding, all of it just lost its grip. And instead, they were filled with this profound sense of new life. Jesus is present with them. Jesus is there. They're experiencing the person. And Jesus' promise is that he wants to be present with you as well. If we were to look in uh, the Gospel of Matthew and see the way that Matthew describes the resurrection, 
uh, immediately following the story of Jesus' physical resurrection from the grave, uh, instead of the road to Emmaus, Matthew tells the story of Jesus' ascension. And you remember he gathers all of his disciples together on the hillside, and he says, I'm about to, to go, and I'm sending you out to make disciples. And he says, and as I go, here's what I want you to know. Do you remember the promise? He says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. I am with you always. Easter, my friends, pushes us beyond agreeing. Easter pushes us beyond even believing. Easter says he's a living reality. And it's not enough just to know that he loves you. It's not enough just to know that he loves you. You have to know his love. It isn't enough just to know that Jesus is good. You have to taste his goodness. Becoming a Christian means that you now have the ability in your heart to, to, to walk with him on the road, to, to grab a hold of him, to sense him, to find him, to, to have a relationship with a living person. And if you don't do that, you're denying the resurrection. You're denying the spiritual power, the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And what I want to say to you this morning is don't settle for that. Don't settle for the memory. Don't settle just for knowing. Don't settle for anything less than a relationship with the living, resurrected Jesus in your life today. What would you have to do to know that and to experience that? What would you have to do between this Easter and next Easter? If you say, you know, I believe all the right things, I understand all of the things, but I don't have that. And, and what would you have to do to change that? So that next Easter, when we come back together, you can sit and say, Ah, I now know. I believe. My heart has been strangely warmed. I've been filled with this new sense of life and urgency. I believe that Jesus' own person, in all of his resurrection power, is with me. And I'm with him. And that is what we believe about salvation. Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Lord, we've, uh, we have a head full of thoughts today. As we uh, stand here in your presence, some of us are wrestling with the, the sheer possibility that your resurrection was real, that the miracle happened in that not just in a spiritual or figurative or metaphorical sense, but in a very concrete, physical sense, you came back from the grave. And some of us, Lord, have just not gotten past our doubts about that. And so, Holy Spirit, uh, speak to that doubt. Confront that, that doubt. And Lord, I, I pray that you would be at work in helping us to embrace that reality that the witnesses saw on that early Easter Sunday morning. And Lord, some of us have, have uh, understood that you were raised from the dead and, 
And, uh, and our thinking today is that it was mostly a personal and private experience. We're grateful that our sins are forgiven and we're looking forward to heaven when we die. But Lord, we haven't grasped the magnitude of the project that you've embarked on. We haven't seen your work in the sweeping scope of history and the, the, the intention of our Father's heart that heaven is here on earth with us today and that we can embody that and, and live out of that reality and that power. And so, Lord, help us to have uh, the experience of your, your presence with us today. Uh, for, for those of us who uh, have gone through motions, who have read the Bible, who have prayed, and it seems dry as dust, Lord, I pray that there will be a renewal of, of urgency and a renewal of heart and life as we taste again your resurrected presence with us. Lord, thank you for all of these gifts today. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.